If you were here last week, Pastor Benny kicked us off by sharing with us the importance of knowing God, why knowing God is so important to our lives. And um, today, I want to bring to you the first attribute of God that we want to highlight to you, to, to you this, uh, in this series. There are many attributes of God, and we've only picked and choose a few that maybe don't get a lot of airtime in our teaching and in our pulpit series, and that's why we've chosen these attributes. And the first attribute that I want to bring to you is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Um, I will not lie to you. I am extremely nervous about what I'm going to share with you today. And I, part of me doesn't really understand why, because the sovereignty of God simply means that God rules and God reigns over all. In fact, I love the songs that we sung affirm that, right? We sang, declared, God reigns, God rules, God is king, right? It's, this should be the shortest and simplest sermon of the entire series. I should be go, God reigns, God rules. You should all go, amen. And we go, all right, break for lunch or, or brunch, I think. It's too, too early. So it should be the simplest sermon, but unfortunately it's not because there's a lot of problems, maybe issues, maybe um, complexities, when it comes to this attribute of God, that God reigns, God rules. And as we go through it, I want to encourage us that whatever you, your belief, whether you know a lot about this topic or whether you know nothing about this topic, to come with an open heart and open mind that as we open up the scriptures together, that we'll see what the scriptures say about God's sovereignty. Okay? And thus, all I want to do today is open up the scriptures and go, okay, what does it say about God's sovereignty? What does it want us to know about God's sovereignty. And there's three aspects of God's sovereignty that I want to highlight to you today, okay? Three aspects. God's sovereign authority and power. God's sovereign timelessness or His eternality. Let's just use the word timelessness for simplicity. And third, His sovereign will. His sovereign will, okay? So let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is your church and you are purifying your bride. So Lord, I pray, may you speak and may you teach and may your church, whom you love, listen to your beautiful voice. And I pray, may it see you. May we, your church, see you for who you are. Not just who we think you are, not who we want you to be, but who you really are. And may we stand in awe, and may we stand amazed by your sovereignty, and by your glory, and by your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. All right. My voice is not loud enough. All right. So, God's sovereign authority and power. What do we mean by that? Okay. So, God's sovereign authority and power. Authority pretty much means that God can do... Um, has authority, has a right, has the permission to do anything. Meaning that everything on this earth and even not on this earth answers to him, okay? And his power is linked to that. His power means that he can do anything. Anything that he wants to do, he can do. He's not like a ruling monarch, right? Who, who, um, who's just a figurehead, right? Just has the title, just has the clothes, just looks the part, but really doesn't have actually any power to do anything, God is not like that. God has the authority and he has the power to do anything that he wills. A good passage that really highlights the interaction between these two is in Matthew chapter 8. 
is the story of the Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus on behalf of his sick servant. His servant um, is gravely ill at home and he comes to Jesus to heal the servant. And I want us to look at what the Roman centurion asks him. Okay, I want us to look at this interaction because it brilliantly um, displays to us this interaction between God's authority and power. Jesus said to the Roman centurion, shall I come to heal him? And the centurion replies, pay attention to this, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my sermon will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I tell this one, come. And he comes and say to my servant, do this. And he does it. That's authority. That's authority, right? What I say goes. And I suppose in today's day and age, right, in our society, we don't really encounter this because if our boss says, go do this, some of us go, well, no. Or we you know, try to negotiate. No, I don't really feel like it. No, I need to leave early today. You know, I, I maybe do it tomorrow. But in that day and age, right, if someone in authority and above you tells you to do something, you better do it. Otherwise, you get something, right, that you, didn't, that, that you don't want. And so this is what it means to be under authority, right? That what I say happens. And what the Roman centurion here is displaying, he's expressing that, Jesus, I understand that you have the authority and power over every sickness, over every disease, over even life, and death, that if you simply say, be healed, my servant will be healed because life and death are in the palm of your hand. He understood this. And that's why Jesus, Jesus replies to him, what great faith. What great faith. It's not the measure of his faith. It's not that the Roman citizen had a, a bounding amount of faith. No, he, had, he believed in who Jesus was was and who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who reigns and rules over all things. And so what does Jesus do? He says, go, let it be done for you just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. That is the extent of God's authority and power. He just says it and it's done. Just says it and it's done. That's what it means that God reigns and he rules and he has authority and power over all things. Okay? God's sovereign authority and power. His second attribute is God's sovereign timelessness. Now this one is a bit of a mind bender. I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Okay, there's a few titles for God, right? Um, that are very interesting. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. Does this sound familiar? He's the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying like he's the A and the Z, right? Now for some of us, we think that, oh yeah, he exists before time and he will exist after time, right? But what if it actually means that God actually transcends time? Meaning that he is the Alpha, he's before time, and he is the Omega at the end of time simultaneously. Right? He stands at the beginning and he stands at the end at the same time. That if we imagine creation and time as a string, right? what if God holds the string? You get what I mean by that? Yes? That God transcends time. Another title is, he is, he is the one who was, who is, and 
who is to come. Right? How can that be? Unless God transcends time. He's outside of it. He's called the great I am. I am. Because there's no evolution, there's no change to God. Because that implies that evolution and change implies that he can, he, that, that there's time involved. But God transcends time. Therefore, he just is. He just is who he is. He will be who he will be. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, For a thousand years are like a day, and a day are like a thousand years to God. How can that be? How can that be? Unless, from God's perspective, time looks entirely different. Time looks entirely different. But I can maybe explain to you this way. Maybe this would help. Do you know those big film reels that they used to capture our movies on? That they used to play in the cinemas? I don't think they do it anymore, Right? But you remember those, do you know what I'm talking about? Those big film reels that you'd have all the film along and that if you, you, if you, you know, pulled out the film, you could see every scene that was on there. You know what I'm talking about? Like every frame and every scene. I'm just going to assume that you understand what I'm saying. I get a lot of blank faces, but you know, that film reel, right? Okay, so imagine this is film reel. Okay, and imagine history and time, all of time is captured on this film reel. Now imagine with me, right? Say you imagine a movie that you've got in mind, like a Marvel movie or whatever movie you've got, right? It's captured on this film reel. And you stretch it all out. You, you un, uh, unreal this entire film. And, it, and before you is every scene of the movie before you, right? So from your perspective, right? Just imagine that. Every scene is before you on, on this film reel. So you, from your perspective, you can see the beginning of the movie. You see the be- middle and you can see the end of the movie at the same time. Right? You follow me? Right? Beginning, middle, end, and every scene in between is viewable to you. Yes? Because you stand outside the movie. But if you're a character in the movie, you don't have that perspective. Right? Because you just have to go along the movie. Right? You, don't, you, don't, you can't see what happens at the end because you're still your character inside it. Right? But for someone standing outside the movie... You can see everything. What if that's God's perspective of us? That he stands outside it. That he can see what happens at the beginning, the middle, and end. That's why I can say to Isaiah or Jeremiah that I knew you before you were born. How can he say that? Unless he actually knows him. He actually, from his perspective, he's, he's not born. There was a time he wasn't born. But from God's perspective, he knows his birth, he knows his growth, and he knows his death. Because for him, it's right now. For him, he can see it. He is there. And that's why he can show us in the scriptures how the world began and he can tell us how it's going to end. Why? Because he's, to him, he sees it all. He sees it it all. Do you you get what I'm trying to get at? That God is totally other. That as time-bound creatures, right, we don't have that perspective. At most, maybe God will reveal a word of knowledge to us and he will give us a glimpse into the future. But it's totally different than what God sees, how God sees creation. He's completely outside it. And that's why, right, to me, this gives me a fresh perspective of God's sovereignty. God's sovereign will, specifically, right? Because it explains to me and it helps me understand how God can weave our past, present, and future into a beautiful tapestry of grace because he sees it all before him. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel, but to me, that humbles me greatly. 
That humbles me. Because I don't have that perspective. But God does. God does, right? And that's the God that we serve. See, God just not only reigns and rules, he doesn't just have authority and power over things. He sees all things. He knows all things. And not only that, he's not just a passive observer of what's happening. He is an active participant in what is happening. He's not like just a moviegoer that's seeing what's happening, but he is like a movie director, movie producer that's got all the scenes laid out in front of him. And he's going, oh, okay, this is happening and this is happening, but I I want this to happen. And so he is creating circumstances to to, um, achieve his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And that is good news for us. That is really good news for us because you know what? God cares for us and his will is good. His will is good, even if it doesn't make sense at the time. Because God's perspective is not ours. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And he is weaving all our past, present, and future circumstances for good. I want to show you an example of this in Joseph, in Joseph's life. Joseph's life is recorded in Genesis chapter 50. Now, I know Joseph's life is quite familiar to most of us, so I'll just quickly recap what happens in his life. It's a very tumultuous life, right? Starts off pretty well. He's a favorite son, favorite son of his father, favorite son, and he doesn't make any attempt to hide that, right? He pretty much flaunts it. He tells his brothers, you know, I had a dream that you're bowing down to me. How great is that? And his brothers are not happy with him. They hate his guts to the point where they want to kill him. They want to kill him. But one brother speaks up and goes, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's not go that far. Let's just sell him off into slavery. Not that much better, but a bit better than him dying. So they sell him off into slavery. So it happens that a group of slavers come passing by and they sell him off to slavery. These slavers happen to come to Egypt and he's bought by the captain of the guard of Egypt called Potiphar. Potiphar just so happens to have a very salacious wife, a dodgy wife, okay, who has the hots for him. And she makes advances on, for, to him every day, right? Every day. She's very persistent, right? And it comes to the point where Joseph's like, you know what? That's enough. And he runs away from her as she tries to force him to sleep with her, okay? And she's so upset, she's so scorned that she falsely accuses him of sexual assault. And of course, no one believes the slave. They believe the slave owner. So he's chucked into prison to languish for an indeterminate amount of time. We have no idea how long he's languishing in prison, okay? So far, not the best life, right? Favorite son to slave, slave to prisoner, okay? Then in prison, he meets these two chief officials after some time, all right, of Pharaoh. One cupbearer, one baker. Chief cupbearer, chief baker. He interprets a dream for them. The baker, he says, you're going to die. And he dies, right? And to the cupbearer, he says, you're going to live and you're going to be reinstated into Pharaoh's palace. And he gets reinstated. But then he says to the cupbearer, hey, remember me. Just one favor I ask of you. Just remember me when you get back there. And he's like, yeah, man, gotcha. I gotcha, fam. You did me a solid. I will remember you. He doesn't remember him, right? And for an indeterminate amount of time, he languishes in prison, right? And must think, be thinking, this guy, man, I did him a solid. I told him he would, I gave him comfort. I encouraged him. And he forgets about me. But then Pharaoh happens to have a dream that no one in the land can interpret. And that's when this silly cupbearer remembers, 
I remember. Dream, I remember dream. Joseph interpreted my dream. Maybe he can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he goes, Pharaoh, there's someone that can help you. Joseph is released from prison and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And that's when he becomes prime minister of Egypt. Only second only to Pharaoh. That is Joseph's story, okay? Now, that tumultuous story at best, right, is not even up and down. It's down, 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 and then suddenly it's skyrocketing up, right? Now, if there's anyone that had a reason to feel betrayed, to feel that his life was unjust, to feel a bit hurt, right, it would be Joseph, right? It would be Joseph. But it so happens that Joseph was in the right place at the right time that God was working something out for good. Because it so happens that Pharaoh had a dream about a famine that was coming up. And Joseph was in a position to prepare Egypt for that famine. To the point where when that famine hits, all the surrounding nations come to Egypt for help. And it's because of Egypt that all the surrounding people, all the surrounding nations are able to survive that famine. And guess who comes to him for help? His brothers. His brothers who sell him into slavery. And they don't recognize him. But when they finally do recognize him, they are scared out of their minds. And they say, you know what, Joseph, just calm down. Don't kill us. Just make us your slaves. And this is what Joseph replies to them. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is Genesis chapter 50. Am I in the place of God? What you, you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intend, brothers, you intended evil. You did evil. You betrayed me. That is evil. Evil. Okay? But God had something else in mind. God has something else in mind. Now, did God see all that would happen in Joseph's life? Yes, he does. Yes, he did. Right? Remember, he stands outside of time. He sees it all. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Could he have stopped any and every one of those terrible injustices from happening to Joseph? Yes, he could. At any moment, he could. But, and this is the controversial part, and this is the part that I'm really nervous about. Okay, but please hear me, okay. But God chose something better. God chose to do something better. He chose to redeem, to redeem that which was meant for evil and to turn it to be used for good. Okay. God took what was meant for evil. I'm not calling evil good. What the brothers did to him, what Potiphar's wife did to him, what the cupbearer forgot him, that was all not good. Not good. But God took that evil, that injustice, that betrayal, and he redeemed it. He turned it around for good, for the saving and blessing of many lives. And the epitome of this is what? Is the, is the cross. Is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was crucified and died. That is not good. That was evil. Human beings killed the Son of God. That's not good. Let's not call that good. That was a brutal, humiliating death. 
But what Satan and his forces and all the human beings that participated in that meant for evil, God redeemed it. He used it for his glory and the saving of the entire world. That is what God does. He takes what is meant for evil and he redeems it. He twists it around and goes, ha ha, you thought you got me. You thought you got my, my, my child, but you haven't. I'm going to redeem it and use it for his good, for her good, for the blessing of many, for my glory. And that's why it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, our sin, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to where? The cross. The cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He humiliated them, triumphing over them by the cross. Why is it that Christianity is the only faith that has as its symbol an ancient torture device that was meant to kill people, brutalize people? Why? It's a symbol that God takes that which is evil and he redeems it for good. For good. He takes dead things and breathes life into them. He takes our greatest successes, our greatest failures, and makes it into our greatest successes. Why is it that our, the stories that we love, our, the hero of the story, always go through this massive low? Do you notice that? All the heroes go through this crisis or this, this pain or something like, or incredible loss, right? And that's when they become who they're meant to be, like the turning point of Peter Parker's Spider-Man, right? is what Uncle Ben saying, Uncle Ben dying and saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And then he becomes Spider-Man, right? He, he becomes it, right? Why is it that all our stories follow this timeline? Why? Maybe it's a reflection of life and of what God loves doing. He loves taking our lowest moments, our deepest valleys, our greatest hurts and redeeming it for good. Redeeming it for His glory. And if that's the kind of God that we serve, then, then what shall we do? What shall we do then? Well, I counsel you, brothers and sisters, that perhaps the greatest thing that we can do, the best thing that we can do is to trust in this God. To trust in Him. Even when things don't make sense. Even when we're going through the valley. To trust that He is in control that, and that He is good. And he's working all things for the good of those who love him. I think I'm jumping in my head as, ahead of myself there. But I want to show you Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 7. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 7. I want to convince you, church, I want to convince you that this God is worth trusting. Worth trusting. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 7 says this. Jesus is telling his disciples this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who killed the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs, the very strands of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more 
than many sparrows. Jesus is saying here, there is nothing to be afraid of in this life. Because if God cares for the tiniest bird, a sparrow, it's a very tiny bird, and he cares about the very hairs on your head, which are insignificant, right? But he cares for, he pays attention to every single hair that falls from your head. How much more? How much more does he care about you? How much more does he care about you? And if you are a believer, if you follow him, if you love him, it gets better. Romans 8 verse 28 says this, and we know that in all things, can you say with me, all things, all people, say all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God takes all things, good, bad, ugly, and he works it for the good, for your good of those who love him. Therefore, we do not need to be anxious about anything. Worry should not be a struggle for Christians. If we grasp and we hold on to the sovereignty of God that loves us and is working all things for our good. Therefore, we can entrust our lives into the, the loving hands of the Father. But you know, I can tell you all this. I can preach this to you. I can unpack all this to you. But the greatest lesson of God's sovereignty will not be a sermon, will not be a book, will not be a teaching series. It will be when life hits you. It will be when you are confronted with the uncertainties and the hardships of life and you are actually faced with a decision. That is the greatest test. That is the greatest educator of God's sovereignty because you actually have to choose at that moment. Do I trust that God's still in control? Do I trust that God is still good and he's working all things for the good of those who love him? Do I believe in this God, even when things don't make sense, that he is still ruling, that God still reigns? That will be when we really learn what God's sovereignty looks like. And I think if there's any time, this is the time when we are facing a season of uncertainty, isn't it? I mean, if you live in WA, right? I mean, one big question in everyone's minds is, when will borders open, right? You have no idea. We have no idea. We are living in a season of great uncertainty. And if there's any time that we could be fearful and anxious and worried, it would be now. Right? It would make total sense if you're a bit stressed or a bit concerned about what is going to happen. Yet, the sovereignty of God, when we truly grasp this attribute of God, that God is sovereign, that he rules and is in control, it actually gives us the ability, it empowers us to live um, fearless, emboldened, courageous lives. In the midst of uncertainty, nothing will faze us. It actually anchors our faith. And it makes us immovable, unshakable, because our trust is in an immovable, unshakable God. 
And we truly grasp it. And that's why I really want us to get this. I really want us to understand this. I really want us to accept this and put our trust in our sovereign God. Because this is good news. It's good news that God reigns. You would not want to serve a God that doesn't reign. Because then he, he might want your good, but he has no power to make it happen. That means all the, the darkest moments in your life mean nothing. But if God reigns and he is good, he's not done yet. It means he's not done yet. It means there's more to come. It really means, and I'm not being cliche, it means that better days are yet ahead. Why can I say that with confidence? Because God still reigns. He still rules and he's working all things for your good. Do you know Jeremiah 29 verse 11, that famous, very popular verse that we hang on our doors, right? I know the plans I have for you. To give you, to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. In what context was that said? It was said at the lowest point of Israel's history. It couldn't get worse for them. They were stuck in a foreign land under foreign oppression, away from their homeland. It seemed like God had abandoned them. It seemed that all hope was lost. They were stuck there for 70 years and it's in exile, in a foreign land, that God speaks this to the people of Israel. I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. Even though your future may seem uncertain, even though things may not make sense, even though you might be going through the worst time of your life, I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans to what? To give you hope and a future. Therefore, settle in Israel, build homes, marry, settle down. You're going to be here for 70 years. But remember, I know the plans I have for you and they are good plans. Will you trust in this God that he knows he's in control and is working all things for good of those who love him? When we are able to put our trust in this God, it actually gives us this power to live fearless lives. Fearless lives. I want to bring you back to Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 5. It says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. Fear him after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Imagine with me, if, um, imagine that you're crossing the road, right? You're crossing the road, and you look over, and you see a bicycle, coming at you at speed, right? He's not taking a leisurely ride. He's coming at you at speed. He wants to win Tour de France, right? He is coming to you at speed. And next to him, right, this rider, this bicycle, is a massive road train truck, right? You're walking across the road and you see these two things. You look across and you see a bicycle coming at you and you see a road train coming at you. Now, which one are you more afraid of? Which one are you more afraid of? Okay, that might as well be a rhetorical question, right? Of course, you're more afraid of the road train, right? Because at, okay, as fast as a bicycle can go, and I, I get it, you can go very fast, okay? Not dissing riders here, right? But even if you hit me, right, I have a chance of getting back up. I have a chance, okay? But if a road train hits me, I'm staying down, right? 
So which one am I going, am I going to be more afraid of? I'm obviously going to be afraid of the road train. Now hear me. COVID. Wars. Acts of terrorism. Famine. Disease. Sickness. Um, financial crises. Tragedies. They are all mere bicycles compared and next to the road train that is God. And for a lot of people, they don't see the road train. It's as if they're blind to it. And that is why the bicycles are such a big deal. We're so scared of the bicycles in our life because there's so many of them, right? So all these things coming at us. Oh my goodness, I'm going to get hit by one of them, right? And solution to our fear is not to ignore the bicycles because they're still there. The solution to our fear is to open our eyes to see the road train. Because it's only, and I get it, right? The road train, isn't the road train more terrifying? Aren't you going to be more scared? But see, it's only when you see how big the road train is that you'll see how small the bicycles are. You get what I'm saying? It's only when you see how big the road train is that you see how small the bicycles are in comparison. Church, we need to see and open our eyes to see God, that He still reigns and see He still rules. Church, I will say this very directly. We do not need to be scared of what's going to happen. Do not be afraid. Instead, I'll tell you whom you should fear. Fear God. Fear God, who has the authority and the power to remove all bicycles from your path. I don't advocate violence against cyclists. But he has the power to remove all obstacles, all hills, all forces against you. No force against you will prosper. How can we say this with confidence? Because God reigns. He's in control. And you know what? He's on your side. He's on your side. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is absolutely true. That verse though is addressed to his enemies. It's addressed to those who have won nothing to do with him. But for those who love him, is Romans 8, 28. I'm working all things for your good of those who love him. Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything because God's on your side and he is sovereign. But I think perhaps a more challenging thing is not seasons of uncertainty, it's actually seasons of hardship. And I want to be careful here. I, I know this is a sensitive topic because some of you may be going through those seasons right now. Okay. It's in these moments of hardship where we face almost a disjunction, a, um, a conflict between our reality and who God is. That we hear that God is good, He's in control, and everything like that. But our reality is terrible. Our reality sucks. It is bad. What do we do with that? I dare say that it is in our darkest moments. And I'm not saying, by the way, that in our darkest moments that we don't cry out to God because who else are we going to cry out to? Right? He is the one that's in control. If there's anyone you should run to, it's him. Run to him. Cry out to him. Wrestle with him. Pray to him. Ask him for deliverance. And after you have done all that, trust him. Trust 
him, that he has got it covered. And whatever happens, whether it makes sense to you or not, whether you like it or not, God has your good in mind. This, I don't know about you, I know some people might be offended by that. I don't mean to offend you. I actually mean to comfort you. This is actually extremely comforting for me because it means that no tear, no heartache, no pain is wasted. You know what I mean? Is it an awful thing if all my tears are senseless, are wasted? But God does not let that happen. He's working all things, all things for the good of those who love him. He is holding past, present, and future in the palm of his hand, and he is weaving it all for his glory and your good. I want to end by sharing with you a story in the Bible. Very famous story, well-known story, but I, I think this is an amazing story that shows us what it's like to put our trust in the sovereign God. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story of three Jewish guys, right? They're stuck in exile under foreign rule in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a narcissistic tendency to want to glorify himself. And he builds this big golden statue and forces the entire kingdom to bow down to it and worship it. And these three Jewish men refuse to do that. And he gets so incensed. The king is so angry at him. How dare you steal my moment? And he threatens them with death by oven, right? I'm going to kill you by a furnace. I'm going to turn it nice and hot until you... I'm literally literally going to grill you, right? And this is their response to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. So you see here the expression of God's authority and power. He is able to deliver us from the furnace. And he will deliver us from your majesty. It's not only that they trust that God can, they trust that God will according to his character. He will remain faithful to them. But listen to the next line. But even if he does not. I know, some of you are thinking, hang on a second, you're going so well, guys. You just don't express doubt, express faith. Just speak faith over your situation, right? But church, I don't believe this is an expression of doubt. This is an expression of humility. This is an expression of humility. They are expressing that, you know, I know who God is. That he is able to deliver us from all things. And he will deliver us from all things because he's good and faithful. But if for some reason that doesn't make sense to me, God chooses not to, I still trust him. I will still praise him. And I will, you will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. That is a trust in God. And no matter what happens, even if God for some reason doesn't deliver me, doesn't save me, doesn't do what I expect him to do, I will still praise him. I will still trust him that he is 
good, He is loving, and He's working all things, all things, all things for the good of those who love Him. Now, for many of you, you know how the story goes, right? What happens next? These guys are chucked into the fire, right? They're still chucked into the fire, and the fire is turned up even hotter than it was going to be originally. But it is in the fire. It is in the furnace that God displays His glory. It is in the fire. It is in the crucible that God shows that I am still with you. That as they're standing in the flames, that are so powerful that even the guards that throw them in are killed, are burned alive. They see what seems like the Son of Man standing among them. And they come out completely unscathed. Church, I believe it is a sign actually of spiritual maturity when we are able to endure the harsh things of life. That our faith is unshaken, unshakable. I'm not saying we don't wrestle with it. I'm not saying we don't cry out about it, I'm not saying that at all, but when we are able to endure and still trust in God, that is a sign of spiritual maturity because it shows us that we are, we still trust in God even when He doesn't make sense. See, God doesn't promise that He's going to remove all fires from your life. He doesn't say that. What does He say? In John 16 verse 33, in this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you are going to have trouble. But take heart. I, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, have overcome the world. Therefore, whatever you go through, whatever you experience, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Cling, trust in God because He alone has overcome all things. Everything is subjected under His feet. Isaiah 43, verse 2 to 3, says this. When you pass through the waters, I am going to be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you are not going to be burned. When you walk, when you walk through the fire, when you go through the flood, oh, it might seem like a flood. Oh, it's going to be a fire but I am still with you. And because I am with you, because the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who holds the stars and the universe in his hands, because he is with you, because he is faithful, because he is loving, because he cares about every part of your life, because that is the God that you trust in, the flood will not overwhelm you. The flame will not burn you up. It will not touch you because God is, the Lord is your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Jesus Christ, He went through it all. He passed through the fire. He passed through the crucible for your sake. He is our Saviour. And that is why we can trust in Him. Because if He is willing to do that, and how much more does He care when you go through the fire and when you go through the flood, that He will sustain you. He will deliver you. Just trust in Him.
Just trust in Him. Cling to Him. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it hurts. He still has the victory. He still has the victory. Therefore, church, what is our response? Trust. 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 You know what makes this application difficult? (laughs) Um, I know there are sermons where we'll call you up and pray for um, deliverance from your circumstances. And I'm not saying that's not important. I'm actually, I, I firmly believe that. Please do not mistake me. Please continue praying for that. But this sermon is to encourage you, is to comfort you, is to urge you that even if, even if God doesn't deliver you right now, if your circumstances don't change right now, that God still reigns. He still rules and He still loves Him. Will you trust Him? Church, let's stand. Let's stand. Um, We're going to sing a song and we're going to worship God because I suppose that's the only fitting response to this. And I also want to give an opportunity. I want you to listen up here. I want to give an opportunity for for those who are struggling through times of uncertainty. You are fearful. Fear grips you in a powerful way and you want to be set free from that fear. I want to invite you to come to the front. We would love to pray for you because you don't need to walk in fear. You can walk in fearlessness next to a sovereign God. And the second group of people I w- we would love to minister to today are those who are going to through seasons of hardship. And these are hard. These are difficult. And it doesn't make sense. We want to pray for you. We want to minister to you God's love and grace and stand by you as you go through this season and to assure you that God is working all things for good of those who love Him. Yes, you. He is working all things for His glory and your good. We would love to pray for those two people, people going through seasons of uncertainty and people going through seasons of hardship. Please come down to the front. We would love to minister to you today. Let's sing the song.